0: Root Simple Podcast. Low-tech, home-tech. Hello and welcome to the Root Simple Podcast, where the audio companion to the Root Simple blog, where we cover gardening, home economics, and DIY living. This show is hosted by myself, Eric Knutson, and Kelly Coyne. We are the authors of The Urban Homestead and Making It, Radical Home Ec for a Post-Consumer World. In episode 15, Kelly and I discuss worm composting and skunks. Hey, Kelly, welcome to the Root Simple Podcast.
1: <laughs> well, thank you, Eric, for having me on your podcast.
0: Well, it's our podcast, <laughs> and actually it's shared by a cat <laughs> in this episode, because there's a cat lounging in front of us. Oh, between. Trout,
1: yeah. Trout yeah. has joined us for the day. First, he busied himself um, scent marking our microphones and he's finally given up and flopped down in the hot cat posture right between us all stretched out so we'll see if he stays quiet if you hear some purring or some clattering you know he he woke up
0: i know root simple listeners are dying to know how the cleaning is going around here they
1: are i have heard feedback on the cleaning there is interest in the cleaning because cleaning is a problem for many of us
0: uh, the sad answer is that we got really busy with a event this week and fell behind.
1: Used it as an excuse to fall behind. Because really, the program that we've been doing, and for those of you who haven't heard previous updates, is the 20-minute-a-day cleaning program, and we have a, an assignment for every day that we're supposed to do. And really, 20 minutes is nothing. You know, it's just like, pull yourself away from the internet for 20 minutes and get it done. But uh, we used our busyness this week as an excuse dismissed several days. And so today we looked around the house and despaired.
0: There was some catch up to do. There
1: was a bit of catch up. There's still, I mean, the the only way this system works is that you do have to stick to it. It You have to work 20 minutes every day or it's just starts falling apart very quickly. So that's one lesson we've learned about it. So we did uh, an extended session of cleaning right before this podcast like and,
0: a extended remix like extended remix of the cleaning with extra concept. deep grooves and it it's, it's okay it's okay
1: now we don't have to head, hang our head in shame if somebody stops by but it still needs some deep cleaning but what i wanted to say was that i was really impressed when in the the last minutes when i was thinking okay we're done cuz we we set a timer eric pulls out the the mop and the bucket and i, I and i thought about mopping but i was like we just don't have time we you know at least we vacuumed it's okay but eric He goes, he goes for the gusto. I want to use a sporting metaphor right now, but I don't know any. We are in the last quarter. We're in the home stretch and he gets out the mop. It's a, it's a naval metaphor. It's a, I
0: was swabbing, swabbing, swabbing the decks.
1: decks. You swabbed the decks. Uh, Yeah. And so I was very impressed with that last minute swabbing.
0: It's all ship shape around here. (laughs) Well, moving on, uh, we have two topics this week. One is worm composting. We just did a event at the Natural History Museum showing off the wonders of worm composting, and we had to brush up a little bit on it for that. I think most of our listeners probably know what worm composting is, but just in case there's a few who don't, Kelly, what uh, what is worm composting?
1: Oh, you put me on the spot. Uh, well, worm composting is is... Uh, also called vermiculture or vermicomposting. It's raising worms so that they do your composting work for you. Uh, Lots of people keep compost piles, and compost piles are wonderful, but they are large, and they do require a certain amount of strength and uh, agility. You You have to be able to shovel, basically, to keep a compost pile, and you need a yard. And not everybody can do that. And then beyond that, not everybody produces enough waste to build a compost pile. And we talk to people all the time who come up to us and say, I have a compost pile, but it's not doing anything. It just sits there, and I'm not getting any compost out of it. And we talk to them about how they built it and what's in it. And it turns out that what they're basically doing is using it as a repository for their kitchen scraps which is fantastic I mean, we want kitchen scraps to be composted in some way because 20% of our landfills are filled with food waste, which is ridiculous. But the problem with doing that in a compost pile is that the you just don't get sufficient mass to get the heat, to get the breakdown. So what you basically have is a pile of stuff that sort of dehydrates and shrinks. You can certainly do it. You can certainly just have a pile. It's called a cold pile. It just doesn't really ever create heat. There's nothing wrong with just continuing to throw your stuff in there. But if you want usable compost, you're not really going to get much at all.
0: Well, and the problem is, eventually you have to stop throwing things in there. No, because well, otherwise, we,
1: when we started, we did this, and we had that. We had this one compost pile, and it was kind of magical because of it. Because it shrinks as the as the food scraps lose their water, it was always almost full, but never overflowing. And we we did it for like more than a year, and we just be able to get a little bit of compost out the bottom. It, it, you know, you can do that. It's a very um, simple. I'm not going to call it lazy. It's a simple way to just let's just say yeah all my organic stuff is just going to return to the earth slowly and i'm just going to keep it in the spot and that's fine but people get impatient and they're like i want compost and if you really want compost but you don't have a lot of organic waste then what you need to do is worm bin and this is what we try to preach is that you should build big hot compost piles all at once with um, probably materials that you have to work to sort of bring together forage for forage for or perhaps you can build one on the basis of um, clearing your garden at the end of the season if you've got that kind of uh, a really big garden if you have that amount of organic matter but um, you forage stuff basically and build a big hot pile and then you can have a big load of compost, but for your well, it's wor- the, for it's your the, kitchen flow. Yeah, the trickle of the trickle stuff coming out of, coming kitchen out of your kitchen, day. it just doesn't work for compost. What it's not enough I- of it? It's ideal for worm bins, and that's what worm bins are for. They are for for absorbing your kitchen waste.
0: And every year, we're lucky to have Nancy Clem from Chicago uh, come by. She's an artist and an environmental activist, and also. She used to run a huge worm composting program at a homeless facility in Chicago. And one year she came and did a little workshop in our backyard and built a worm bin for us. So we have a really big worm bin. It's about, I don't know, it's
1: five, five feet, long? feet long. It's five by two by two.
0: It's like a bench.
1: It's like a coffin.
0: And yeah, it looks a little bit like it's a coffin. A coffin
1: for a short person.
0: And it's produced quite a bit of worm compost you pulled out at least two what are those 15 no five gallon i guess Yeah, five gallon buckets
1: what yeah we used to have a little a little uh, plastic bin indoors but then like after nancy came and uh helped us build our big wooden bin i i've loved it i love the wooden bin i love it because it's breathable like i like the wood environment if you can possibly make a wood bin I, I do recommend them over plastic bins, but I know that it's hard for some people to do that. And plastic works fine, but I've been impressed with the performance of the worm bin, um, the wooden one.
0: It's outside. We should point that out. It
1: is an outside bin. But what I like best about it is that it is huge.
0: It's it, huge. It's huge. And of course, again, we're in Los Angeles, so we can do an outside bin year round here. Yeah. But that leads me to a problem we But, had. Oh, but
1: before we go to our problem, oh. I just wanted to say that there is something to be said for size. If you it depends on how much warm bin you need. It's going to depend a lot on how much food waste you produce, which depends a lot on how many people are in your family and how much you cook at home. Now, Eric and I are just two, but we do try to cook at home a lot, and we have a very kind of heavily vegetable-based diet, and so we do have quite a bit of fruit and vegetable trimmings. So we can feed this giant bin and it works and a small bin would be too small for us. Cause when we had that small bin, I was always giving the worms some food, but then having to figure out what to do with the rest of my scraps. And so now all my scraps go into this big bin. And basically what I do is work one side and then the other. So I'm actually have two and a half feet of active space. And then I'll have two and a half feet that's finishing up the, and you know, we're, this, we're not gonna talk all about how to worm compost here. But I found it really helpful to have a two-sided system. And those of you who do worm compost will understand what I mean. So I start uh, feeding, and I put new bedding in and feed on one side to get the worms to migrate to that side and let the other more completed side just mellow out and finish composting. And then I harvest it. And when I harvest it, I'm pulling out about 10 gallons of worm compost at a time, which is a fantastic asset to our garden.
0: And I got to say that... Worm compost immediately started growing seedlings out of it that were extremely healthy looking.
1: Well, this is the thing that, yeah, worm compost does not, the composting process is cool and it does not uh, kill seeds. So your tomato seeds and your squash seeds and cucumber seeds and whatever that end up in there, most of them survive that process. And that's something you just have to be aware of when you're using your worm compost. You'll get you'll get seedlings from from these little volunteer vegetable plants. And it's not really any big deal to pull them. But what is amazing is why I have my buckets of compost just start sprouting completely beautiful, healthy squash and tomato plants because they love worm compost.
0: Now to get back to the container, we have a lot of listeners who may be in apartments and of course, you can do a worm bin in a small container, uh, typically a um, plastic tub,
1: like a Rubbermaid tote. For you, U- I guess that's more of a U.S. brand for our internationalists. But you know, a one of those sl- some kind of lidded storage, storage tote of, made of some heavy duty plastic with holes drilled in it, basically.
0: And we did one for the workshop that we did. It was about uh, twenty-four inches, I think, something like that. Twenty inches by, I don't know, a foot, something like that, and. That might not be big enough for all your kitchen scraps. Would that be your experience? But I I think it's not a big deal. You you might have to throw some of them out, but at least you're composting some of your kitchen scraps. Yeah, again,
1: it depends on how, you know, I mean, if you eat out a lot, if you don't eat a lot of vegetable stuff, because the worms they eat mostly vegetables, you know, it depends on your diet and your habits of how much space you need. But certainly it's just starting somewhere is a good idea. You start with a bin, and if you find that the worms can't keep up with as much stuff as you are producing, you can either just compost that some other way or start a second bin or start thinking about moving into a larger bin. And if you get a bin that's too big for your needs, that isn't really a problem.
0: Too big is better than too little. I think so. I guess it's just a matter of space. It's
1: about as a matter... Yeah, you're just really wasting um, storage space or square footage, you know, Um, it, it doesn't... Batter to the worms. They'll just if, have extra. If you're room.
0: smart about it, you would build it into like we have an outdoor bench with the outdoor bin. But you could do the same thing on the inside. I'm sure someone's done like an IKEA hack here. It seems to me there would be a coffee table. Uh, there or are
1: coffee table worm bins. Something like that, pictures. or
0: a, a bench, or some kind of you know people do keep, double people use. People keep worms in their use. bedrooms
1: and their living rooms. I mean, once you get over the creep factor, uh, you know, you you can keep them anywhere. You you can create a bin that does not leak or anything like that. Although admittedly, most people who keep them inside, keep them in a laundry room or a garage or, or maybe in a corner of the kitchen where they seem to be able to do less damage to the carpet and whatnot.
0: Now, in some ways, the corner of the kitchen might be the best place because it's closest to where the food is, but also there's this temperature issue. And when it came time to do this workshop, we wanted to have you know this giant writhing, seething mass of worms to show off to and make everybody
1: go, oh, look at those worms.
0: And we actually, had the museum set up a camera, a worm cam for us, which was pretty cool. But there was a problem because not, we didn't have a lot of worms. I went,
1: I it was awful, and I should have thought about it. Worms have worms have a preferred temperature range for working, and it's fifty five degrees Fahrenheit to eighty degrees Fahrenheit. And below that and above that, they really start shutting down. And then um, the more extreme, they, they die on either end of that, too. So we have been hovering in the 90s for weeks and weeks now. I did, it's just like the summer will never, ever end. And I'm I'm tired of it. I realize the worms and I have a lot in common in terms of temperature preferences. But so I'm, I'm lazy and grumpy, and, and actually the worms are, too. And so I went out to look at the worms to, you know, to pull some for display. And I realized that they were small and they were hiding. And I realized that the worm bin was kind of hot. And first I thought it was, I had added some, some new matter, some dry matter. And in the texture in my bin was a little, and uh, just needed, it looked like it needed some mixing. So I had mixed some stuff in and I was afraid and I touched it and it was warm. And I, I thought, oh no, I set up a heat reaction because, you know, if you mix, carbon and nitrogen in a compost pile, after a day, it gets really warm. And that's what it had felt like it had happened. So I thought, oh my goodness, I have I have killed all our worms by setting up a heat reaction in my bin. But actually, I think it was just the heat, the ambient heat beating through. The, 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 the bin is sheltered for most of the day, but it gets some intense afternoon sun. And I am now rethinking its positioning. I learned a lot because I, the fact is that, you know, when you have a worm bin, you you could be all worm obsessive and all about worm productivity, and you couldn't worry about how many worms there are and how much they're eating a week. And I'm you know, there are people like that, but I don't, I just, I just sort of throw stuff in and I just let it roll and I don't pay a lot of attention to them. And I realized that that was kind of a mistake this summer, but it did teach me that, oh, okay, worms shut down in the summer, just like they do in the winter. So... To get back to the event, we just really didn't have a lot of worms to show off, certainly none of those big handfuls of writhing fat worms that we wanted to show. And so Eric put out a call on Facebook like to our friends who keep worms to say, does anybody have a handful of worms to share with us? And everybody wrote back going, oh man, my worms are not doing so well.
0: Basically, everyone had the same problem, Ex- I think. Yeah.
1: And that's, so that's just something to think about. Um, for us in warmer climates,
0: well, we we actually both warm and cold climates. We all well, need yeah. to think about this because for us, the problem's in the summer. For most people listening to this podcast, it's probably the winter time.
1: But people have hot. There's people with cold, cold winters. And That's hot true. There summers, are places too. where it's hot. I and know, you cold. don't have a lot of experience in the other parts of the That's country, true. Eric, <laughs> living here in so-called paradise. Um, but yeah, they have hot summers and cold winters. So I think you know, for an, in, an outdoor bin insulation is a good idea. And I'm, so now I'm thinking about insulating our bin. What I would really like to do is sink our bin into the ground. To stabilize the temperature that would
0: involve a lot of digging not yeah. my favorite activity I, I have to say i know and it would also look like in we heavy had clay. like some
1: sort of burial going on when we sink the coffin <laughs> the neighbors think we're weird enough i i don't know but, but yeah we need to take better care of the worms in the summer
0: now in the course of doing the research for the workshop we also came across a lot of conflicting advice Uh, especially on the issue of what worms can and cannot eat, what you can put in your worm bins and what you can't put in your worm bins.
1: Yeah, there is actually a, a, a lot of conflicting information about that that could confuse the newbie worm keeper. I would say if you're confused, just don't worry about it and do... Just try things and do what your gut says, and just use common sense. And don't put a fine. lot
0: of any one thing in. probably Yeah. Is a good idea. So the
1: the things that um they say no to, no citrus, you know, because of it's things. acidic. Because it's acidic, yeah. So the worms don't like that. Now, Mr. Trout,
0: we have a cat bothering us is now, now again.
1: in full bother mode. He's coming now. He's scent marking my microphone, Mr. Trout. You have to go away. Come on, go, go, shoot. Walk the plank. I'm pushing him off the table. Here we go. All right, maybe he'll stay. And so citrus is, is a universal problem. I don't think it's the end of the world if you put a lemon rind in there. They can work around stuff if they have the space and the but time. But a lot of it
0: a lot of it would definitely not be. Yeah, good so idea. if you like
1: make a bunch of homemade orange juice or lemonade and and you've got a ton of rinds. Don't throw those all in your tiny worm bin. Then Some, the worms will be living in pure in pure acid. So you know that's common sense, right?
0: During our workshop, actually, someone came up to me who juices a lot, which <clears throat> that's mm-hmm. a whole the nutritional aspect of that's another question, which you know I I have issues with, but. I had to tell him, maybe not, you know, if, especially, of course, if he's juicing a lot of citrus, that would not be a good thing. But if he was juicing kale, that would be fine.
1: Yeah, the pulp from the juicing process would be excellent for the worms. Um, I, yeah, I wouldn't want a ton of fruit juice or anything really sweet, that kind of sweet, acid, sugary.
0: Stone fruit would probably be okay, but not not citrus.
1: Yeah, but even like if you have a ton of stone fruit, any kind, of, if, you, if you put a ton of fruit in any worm bin, you're going to be attracting flies, and so that's something you would just want to be a little bit cautious with uh, onions are another thing that are um, often cited as being a no no
0: what about garlic
1: nobody ever mentions garlic i know
0: a lot actually a number of people asked me that uh, uh, you huh. know
1: garlics are small i mean how much garlic are you going to possibly shove into a worm bin i don't think it matters and the funny thing about onions although there's this <laughs> now, okay now the cat's now trout, with a crinkly piece of paper uh, he, that trout is now he's between us again chewing on plastic Maybe if I throw it. Oh, it's a a piece of tape. He likes the taste of the glue on the tape. Anyway, onions, just don't use too many of them, you know, and it's going to be fine. Onion skins are fine, but just don't pack the bin with onions. Then there's like the meat, dairy. Can you put meat, dairy, and grease and that kind of stuff? And grease is just probably not a good idea. But meat and dairy, actually, in the classic book, Worms Eat My Garbage, which we'll talk about later. She's all totally cool with meat and dairy. And that's funny because almost anywhere else you go, they'll be like, no, no meat and dairy. But she talks about her own process of she'll put like whole chicken parts in her worm bin, you know. And and the thing is with the meat and dairy is that they stink and they attract pests But if you know what you're doing, you can deal with that and prevent that.
0: You had a really big one, but you could also have a disgusting- You could have a disgusting maggots maggots
1: in your kitchen, in your bin, and everybody's screaming and crying, and then you you think you're a failure at worm binning, you know, but no, you can do it. You can, the truth is with composting and, and vermicomposting is just another kind of composting is that you can actually compost- anything organic
0: although the museum provided us with a wonderful volunteer who ended up he was a biologist and had studied worms ocean worms and all kinds of other worms and he pointed out something one of the issues with things like onions and oil is that plants put out chemicals that are designed to repel other creatures and that can actually be one of the issue with some of these things and it's why you don't want to add a lot of them to a worm bin
1: so that means it's like the worms are repelled but they can't escape and so then they're depressed
0: more than depressed actually the they're plants put out poisons that uh are meant to actually that's one of the reasons citrus is the way it is is to, to keep worm you know the plant wants to keep worms out of itself
1: yeah you never have a worm in an orange the way you have a worm. It's kind in an of an apple. evolutionary thing yeah I thought
0: that was a good point Now, there was also in the advice, we are looking at conflicting advice about whether you can use white paper or not.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. I mean, as a bedding material for the worms, one of the basic bedding materials is just shredded newspaper, also shredded brown paper and shredded cardboard that doesn't have lots of labels on it. You definitely never want to use shiny colored inserts like those sort of free giveaway flyers and newspaper inserts that are real shiny not those, but white paper, I've seen conflicting evidence or conflicting opinions about because of the bleach content, but plenty of people work with that. I met a lady at the event who she's like, yeah, all my junk mail goes in the bin, not the shiny stuff, but you know, all her envelopes, she takes the plastic windows out. She, all of her, her mail, her bills, they all end up in her warm bin and she's very happy about that. And again, in Worms Eat My Garbage, Applehoff has no problem with white paper and she did it for she passed away in 2005 but she had like 30 40 years of worm composting experience behind her so i'm willing to believe her but you will see people cautioning against bleached papers
0: there used to be an issue with the ink but ink is mostly soy based now so i don't think that's as big an issue yeah
1: the ink in the newspapers is, is pretty safe
0: now it was interesting talking to a general public about worm composting usually when we're doing a workshop whether it be brad or gardening we've got aficionados or hobbyists there who are already into these things And, and one of the really nice things about this event at the museum was that they had a dj there they had cocktails and there was a lot of people really wonderful audience but not the usual audience for this kind of thing so it was an opportunity to talk to a lot of different people and I had a really nice conversation with a student who came up I think he must have been a business student and he was looking for entrepreneurial you know opportunities and I remembered a meeting I had with the municipal I was invited to a meeting at a municipal waste facility and there was a consultant there and he was talking about this chance for large institutions like schools, nursing homes, hospitals to do a composting program of some kind because it's a win-win situation for everyone because for cities and for private waste haulers, they're basically in the trucking business. They're moving stuff around and the price of fuel is not cheap anymore and continues to go up. So they're looking for opportunities to reduce the amount of stuff they're hauling, which is exactly what worm composting or composting programs could do. So there's a real chance for large institutions to have a, a institutional size worm bin and actually santa monica college here in southern california has a really large worm bin that they do this with and so we got to talk about that and i think that's something that uh, we're going to see more and more of in the future kelly did you have any interesting conversations with people
1: i had a lot of good conversations with people i I spent a lot of time uh, convincing toddlers that they wanted to put a a worm in their palm which was great Um, a lot of people most of the people i talked to didn't know that it was possible to compost with worms. So I'm glad that we got that information out there. I don't know how many of them were sold on the idea, but you know, you plant a seed and, 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 and it grows. And those little kids playing with the worms, they might be worm composters someday. And, and so that's good.
0: And the volunteer, uh, Michael, that the museum gave us, he made a nice point to me after the event. He said, this is a great opportunity for people to get in touch with nature because we have to assume that people haven't been to a farm or haven't been in the forest. And this is a chance to interact with something. And maybe that's the greater good of doing something like this. And I was really relieved that no one seemed to be afraid of the worms. People were putting their hands in there and looking around and putting the worms on their hands. And that was all really, really good. And we had the camera, on the worm bin too for a while and it picked up a lot of other things that are in worm bins like springtails and sow bugs. There was a lot of pandemonium when a sow bug would cross in front of the camera <laughs> and move move around. Those are all decomposers too. Michael the volunteer, uh, again a biologist, pointed out to me that 70% of the organisms on the earth are decomposers. And that's that was a, another nice thing about doing this demo. One last issue there. there were a lot of questions. Actually, before we did this, no one asked at the. Oh,
1: I had questions about leachate. Oh, you had
0: questions about leachate. That was one one question we both had going into this is, is leachate okay to use? Now, leachate is the watery slurry that that comes off of a worm bin.
1: I met a lot of people who thought the leachate was the entire purpose of worm composting. Oh, the whole, because, I think, because of those um, fancy commercial bins that have a spigot at the bottom.
0: Or maybe people were confusing it with compost tea too
1: no i don't think so i think the people just thought like that's what you keep worms so you get the leachate a lot
0: of them have the spigot at the bottom and one of the things with keeping worms is you got to keep them uniformly moist but not too wet not soggy and if there's a lot of that leachate coming off that probably means that the bin is too soggy and of course when you put in fresh fruit or vegetables you're introducing water so that's probably how that might happen as people wet it down too much and then they're adding moist food and then that's that's coming off of the bin the other of course the other extreme is probably some people keep it too dry yeah too. especially
1: the outdoor bins in, in the summer can dry out really quickly so you need to be adding wet bedding to it all the time or misting it down with a mister or something you have to you you do have to really watch the consistency of your warm bin that's all you have to do really cause you don't have to worry about temperature like you do with compost well you do have to wear that they're not getting too hot but you know you're not worrying about hitting those certain sorts of plateaus and stuff eric's always out with his giant thermometer looking at our compost pile you don't have to do that but all you have to do is stick your hand in there once in a while and go is it too wet is it too dry and it needs to be Exactly the consistency of a rung out kitchen sponge.
0: But back to the leachate, the, the, the issue with the leachate is that it's an anaerobic material. In other words, it's got bacteria in it that are working in the absence of oxygen. I think that that's the issue for some people. I looked into it and my trusted sources, extension service sources said it's okay to use. I looked at the peer-reviewed studies on it and found a number that demonstrated that leachate is a good fertilizer. One thing about it is it definitely needs to be diluted before you use it, at least one-to-one. Some other sources suggested 10-to-one. I've seen that, yeah. Another issue with it is a food safety issue because it's a substance that's coming off of food that hasn't necessarily been Composted yet, it could have some pathogens in it, so it would not be something I would spray on lettuce that you were going to eat raw. Uh, another thing about leachate is that the sources I looked at suggested being conservative with it, trying it on some plants you don't care about first <laughs> to make sure it's okay before don't you go like crazy with it. Uh, so some amount of conservatism with it is is warranted, but it does seem to be a, a effective fertilizer.
1: But you don't need it. I mean, we don't collect leachate. Our wooden bin doesn't have any mechanism for, for collecting leachate. So uh, what I want are the castings. And you can make tea out of the castings if you feel the need for a liquid treatment. But I'm perfectly happy with just taking the castings and top dressing with them. And it works fine. And it's it just seems much cleaner and much more convenient than dealing with that stinky, nasty stuff.
0: Anything else you want to say about worms? Other than people should go out and do it.
1: Worms are great.
0: They are great. Well, moving on, the next topic is skunks. Skunks, skunks, and more skunks. Kelly, for my birthday, gave me a wilderness camera. Actually, we ended up first with the wrong camera. It was a game camera that was for shooting... Deer and elk. Well, which not, we don't, it
1: doesn't actually shoot them for you.
0: <laughs> it, well, I mean, it, it takes pictures of deer and elk. And so
1: then you can go shoot them more effectively.
0: We don't have a lot of deer and elk in our backyard, thankfully. We have no deer and elk in our backyard. Some people actually in Los Angeles do have deer in their backyard, but we're enough into the city where that's not an issue. We return that camera, and then we got a smaller camera that is for Taking pictures of birds and smaller animals and it's it's like a motion detector with a camera in it. So some some if something moves in front of the camera, it snaps a picture. And I set it up for the first time last night in the backyard and we had We struck gold. We struck gold, mammalian gold. (laughs) First, there were a couple really wonderful pictures of a possum, which I'll have to put up on the blog. Surprise, surprise. Crawling around under Kelly's shed. We have a shed in the backyard, which is kind of a magnet for critters because it's got no... Foundation. Foundation. It's, it's up on blocks, and yeah,
1: just like precariously stacked bricks yeah. <laughs> or something. So there's a lot of space under there, and all sorts of critters.
0: I should say this: this is an old house, and the shed is is a, as old as the house. So it's almost 100 years old now. It's a little miniature version of the house. It's very cute, but it was built in even more of a hurry than the house was. <laughs> and I had something. to I had to fix it when we first moved in, and I probably should have poured a foundation for it, a proper foundation. Instead, I propped it up on (laughs) blocks where it stood just fine. But the point is that I created habitat, and that's the problem. I created a habitat for critters. And the other thing about this yard is that, again, it's 100 years old, and there's lots of funky old fences on top of old fences and trees, and it's kind of confusing back there. Great habitat for mammals, and at one point I I had this idea that I could skunk-proof the yard, the backyard at least, because the one good thing about skunks is they don't climb walls, and I thought I could screen them out. They will dig, so I kind of went around, and anywhere where I thought a a skunk could dig under the fence, I put down some wire to try to keep them out. And I thought I was successful, but as the camera showed last night, not only was there a possum visitor, but there was a skunk visitor.
1: This is sad because you've spent so much time this spring. I spent a lot you, of time was working on it. All out skunk war this spring. And then we, we started our summer garden very late because we were waiting for for the skunk traps to work and all this stuff. Eric was trying to capture skunks. We had concerns about. Baby skunks living under my shed, we didn't want to take away the mommy if they were still under there and all this stuff and it just caused all sorts of trouble and got us to a late start with the garden. And it's all and I had been seeing skunk holes lately.
0: And that's the problem with skunks, of course, is that they like to dig for grubs. Uh, specifically, I think they go for those, what are those, the compost grubs, those really giant ones?
1: Well, here, those come from the, um, they call Japanese beetles or fig beetles, the fig eater the, the beetles, fig eater beetles Another the decomposer. green ones that look like scarabs and who fly like they're drunk. Uh, I don't know if they're everywhere or if they're just here, but they uh, they have big, huge, fat grubs that chickens love. and And skunks skunk's love love. the one thing is that here we don't have a big native worm population speaking of worms because it's just dry i mean unless the worms can get a foothold in a place that's constantly irrigated they don't live where it's not irrigated because there there just isn't rain for at least nine months out of the year so we're not worm rich and so the skunks probably elsewhere eating a lot of worms but here they're looking for for grubs beetle grubs
0: and in the course of looking for beetle grubs, they tear up gardens, and you can put in all those new seedlings. You know, I've, I've had many times here when I've had a brand new bed that I've spent a lot of time growing seedlings. I put them all in, and in one night, they are all gone because a skunk got in and started digging around, and for a long time, I've skunk-proofed the vegetable beds that we have, which is a huge pain in the ass with bird netting, and the bird netting gets tangled in the plants. And every time you want to harvest something, you have to take the bird netting off.
1: And it's also plastic and awful. Plastic.
0: It's ugly. I I did a lifting kind of skunk proofing job last winter too where I had this bird netting that was hooked up to a a hinged door on top of the bed. You could just lift the thing up. And it works great, but it's really ugly looking. I don't like it. And it's again to deal with the skunks. Now the other issue with the skunks is our our late Doberman. <laughs> we he would like to go skunk hunting late at night. And there was one really memorable evening when we had been at a wedding in Palm Springs, way Way a long way, and instead of
1: spending the night, we drove back that night. And we
0: got back about two in the morning. And exhausted.
1: The dog... I mean, I cannot say how exhausted we were after a long drive, a long party, and then another long drive. And we we came in. I remember that I let him. He was, you know, he, poor guy. He'd been stuck in the house for like eight hours or something. Or no, I think we had someone come and let him out for relief. But he was eager to get outside, jumping around. So I I just threw open the back door and let him run out. And went into the bedroom to change out of my formal clothes, and thank goodness I did in time because then he came running back in the bedroom in a state of complete panic, rubbing himself on the bed like crazy, and on I us and us. And I couldn't figure out what was going on until then. Then all of a sudden, the scent hit me, and I realized he'd been skunked bad. And I think it was the first. I think that was the first skunking in our backyard. I think he had had some run-ins on walks, but.
0: Well, in the course of really his long... this one really took us by surprise. Yeah, I think in the course of his long Doberman life, which was, what, 12, 13 12, years? 12,
1: 13 years. There was six?
0: Mm, not that many, but... Oh, uh, there were six. You think there were six uh, encounters? Yes. All of them losing Skunk encounters.
1: six, Doberman zero. Exactly. Yeah. But, oh, so then all of a sudden, I'm exhausted... I'm half dressed, and there's this this frantic Doberman rubbing his stinky 95 pound body all over the entire house. So, and we
0: had none of the things that you're supposed to clean them with.
1: And and so I, I shoot him outside, and it was it was sad because it was cold. Um, which just never which happens here. Um, and got him outside, and then sent Eric to the all night store to get hydrogen peroxide because he's just too big for tomato juice like where are you going to do that i went
0: into the grocery store smelling so badly of skunks that the staff of the grocery store was sniffing as I was checking out, wondering what was going on. And to, Didn't to,
1: someone in line say, what's that smell?
0: Well, what was funny is that the job I had, we had consulted with some professor a few weeks ago who happened to be in line at 2 in the morning. I don't know what he was getting in the grocery store, so I ran into him. Did
1: he see you and recognize he you? He did,
0: and he smelled me. <laughs> and I think I had to quickly explain, and he didn't have much of a sense of humor about it. <laughs> Uh, it it was, it was kind of an awful night and we were up until
1: four or five and the whole house, it was cold, but we had to just open every window in the house and just let it all air out. And, you know, there's that way that just a faint whiff of skunk is okay. And it actually kind of has this nostalgic quality that I, I almost like, but up close, a full on. Skunk attack is like some kind of chemical warfare. It's like burning tires. It's a terrible, terrible smell. And I remember just crashing into the bed, just so exhausted with the cold air running, you know, from the windows, just running over me. And still the smell, the smell was everywhere. And it was stayed in the house for like two weeks before it faded away.
0: The point is both for the sake of the garden and if you have dogs, I think skunk-proofing a backyard is a worthy project. And I'm hoping that...
1: And, and so now what are you going to do? Well, I'm hoping, obviously we am yeah, have obviously a Yeah, obviously we have
0: a fail here. But I'm hoping with this, this bird cam to be able to figure out where the skunk's coming in and out. Because I think that's one of the, the reasons I'm excited to work with this camera is to figure out the wildlife paths through the yard... Uh, and to see where they're coming in and kind of adapt our landscaping to deal with that. You yeah, know, work we with can, them
1: instead of against them.
0: Yeah, I think we can, I still think we can exclude skunks from the backyard. Maybe that's, maybe that's very hopeful, but I still think it's a possible project to do. I'm also just interested in seeing what's visiting the yard and where they're going and what they're eating. We're, we'll never exclude the Possums, of course, because they can climb, but we can certainly, like we have a very secure chicken coop, because I'll point out both the skunks and possums are chicken predators, so this is another reason, of course, we have to lock up our chickens securely at night, but it would be interesting to see what times of night they're coming in and what they're doing. And I'm, I'm very ex- excited to, to, to see that. And we'll share, of course, that on the blog, the results.
1: If you're wondering, if you see a hole in your backyard and you're wondering who dug that, skunks make cone-shaped holes. So if you see cone-shaped excavation, you know that was Mr. Skunk.
0: And hopefully we'll be seeing fewer cone-shaped excavations. <laughs> An ongoing feature we have on the Root Simple podcast is what are we reading this week and both Kelly and I are avid library customers. I actually have a funny library story. I was at the library yesterday, which is near the YMCA where I work out, and on the new shelf was a book called Dealing with Difficult Library Customers, which I thought was really funny. I thought I was in a dream or something. I, I actually pulled it down and took it to the librarian at the entrance to show it to her, and she laughed and asked if I was in that book, but. I hope I'm not in that book. I return my library books. (laughs) Anyways, what are you reading this week, Kelly? Well,
1: unsurprisingly, this week I was reading Worms Eat My Garbage by Mary Applehoff. Who, which we've already mentioned. It is the Bible of worm composting. It's
0: really almost the only book on worm composting. Oddly,
1: yeah. There's. I looked. I was wondering because this was this. It's got this charming '70s cover with the smiling worms. Because the '70 was '70s were all okay. about was smiling. It, when was it written? Actually? You know, I can look at the the publishing dates, but it's been it's been uh, republished and revised, but it still has the '70s cover. Uh, I, I'll check the dates while while you talk about your book, but it, it, it's it been the standard forever. She passed in 2005, like I said. There is another book which was published in the 90s, maybe, that I found. Uh, it was not at the library, and I didn't want to buy it unknown. I, it's not being sold around here. I found it on Amazon, and I didn't really know what to make of it. I looked at Whatever page previews I could find, and it just didn't look all that exciting. It might be full of treasure. I don't. Know, I just haven't had a chance to look at it, but I didn't see anything right away that told me, "Oh yeah, this is going to give me a leg up over Applehoff's book." So I think still think Applehoff's is the uh, is the gold standard.
0: It's kind of like one of those books, like Square Foot Gardening. That's it's, it's a just, classic.
1: Yeah, it's just always there. And I'm I was I actually had not I think I'd seen it many years ago. But I went through it more carefully this time because I wanted to be able to answer questions that were thrown at me. And there's a lot of good information in here. So I think even, you know, say you are a worm composter, but you've never had this book, it might be worth checking out. Because it's such an old book, it's easy to find in libraries and used stores. But I think it's really, really worth taking a look through just for the kind of detail she has
0: and there's not really anything else. So that, that is the (laughs) book. Actually, I shouldn't say that there's, there's a lot of good online sources now.
1: Yeah. And we have links.
0: Yeah. Kelly did a long post on worm composting. I'll link to that in the show notes of this show. And there is a couple of very good sources online, particularly there's a university extension pamphlet that I really liked. It's about 15 pages long Pretty much all you need to know about where Yeah, it really
1: is. If yeah, if you're not if you're not in the market for a whole book, that's Oregon 15 State, right? Oregon State University Extension Services. Extension Services are always the place to go for information. Like if you're googling something and you find an answer from an Extension Service, look at that one. Like trust that one. Don't trust the uh, don't trust the weird bloggers like us. Exactly. You know. uh, but yeah, so OSU, Oregon State University extension worm composting pdf you might be able to find it just with that but we have a link to it and yeah you can you got it's like a 15 page pdf that just tells you basically all you need to know and it, and it even has instructions on how to build a plastic bin in it and what are you reading this week eric
0: not surprisingly i'm reading a book about bread it's called bread a global history by william rubel and actually i saw william rubel speak he was a very entertaining speaker this is a really slim book. You could read it in one evening really. And what it is 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 a cultural history of bread. It's it's like bread as a as a cultural construction. And there's a number of surprises in the book, one of which is that white bread is not a new thing. And what he does is he traces a lot of it's actually the history of white bread. White bread is was something for the elites in the past because, of course, to make white bread you have to sift the flour and you lose, of course, you lose a lot of the nutrients but you lose a lot of the mass of the flour too so it's something for very wealthy people and in the old days, people who weren't wealthy ate the leftovers of making the white bread and in a way that was ironically healthier but there's a long history to white bread and the kind of wonder bread loaf that people like me disparage these days was actually, you know, if you were the king of France, that's kind of what you were eating was something that looked like that and had the texture of, of a wonder bread loaf. And the sort of artisanal loaf of today is yet another cultural construction. It's a It's a trend, basically. And it goes against the older kind of way of doing things where that would have been a a peasant loaf in the past really Uh, a denser whole grain artisanal loaf is what poorer people ate in the past a number of really he looks at a number of really interesting breads in actually around the world and speaking of dense loaves one of the one of the funny things was there's a there's a village in switzerland where to this day they still make these huge rye bread loaves which are so dense that they would make them. It you know, would make them only once a year, and then people would saw off hard chunks of it throughout the year and moisten them to rehydrate them. <laughs> that was pretty common practice, actually, because to, to fire up a a bread oven takes a lot of energy to do, and it would have been a common lot, yeah, in the past to to just fire it up only once in a while and people would have these these bigger loaves that they would
1: that's why there's such a wealth of uh of use for stale bread in more traditional cuisine and we've forgotten a lot of that we've seen that before remember when we saw happy people the werner Herzog movie about the russian trappers and they would take take huge bags of bread up to their up to their um trapper cabins, because they were going to be alone for many, many months, and they had to provision themselves. And they would put the bread loaves in special kind of elevated bread houses to keep the critters away from them, and just let those bread, you know, those loaves just turn into bricks. And then somehow they didn't, I wanted to know what they, how they ate those, but Herzog didn't tell us, but that's, that's, you know, stale bread all winter long. And I've also heard about flatbreads middle Eastern flatbreads that are made like once a year in in piles just like piles of them and they just dry them out actually you know dehydrate them stack them uh, and then just moisten them before eating
0: Rubel actually has a whole section on flatbreads because flatbreads in Europe are a marker of of poor people because that's it was not something that the elites ate and so in Europe where you still see flatbreads tends to be places where people weren't as wealthy like Southern Italy and places like that you'll still see flatbreads and that's a leftover of a time when people did not have as many resources.
1: We don't have the resources now, we just think we do.
0: Well, what's funny is that some of these things that were essentially, again, like the artisanal breads of today, that were the breads of poor people have flipped, and now it's the uh, the bread of the elite, and poor people are, are eating, eating Wonder the, Bread. They're eating King Louis bread. Exactly. Yeah. Unfortunately, because sometimes those, those breads are not the healthiest for people. The other thing, looking at this book, was thinking about the whole gluten trend right now, and of course, bread is a double-edged symbol. It's a symbol of of life, but it's also a symbol of labor and hard work. And you see that in the history of bread too, of bread being the symbol of toil, because and it's in the Bible too. It represented yeah, that toil way. For your bread. Yeah. Uh, he has a whole section on. Uh, horse breads too, which are breads that were made to feed horses. And actually poor people would end up eating those sometimes too. And they're a a really, really dense, mostly whole grain, not mostly, but all whole grain kind of hard rocks that people would eat. At any rate, it's it's an interesting book, a short read, worth an evening's read for sure.
1: I checked Applehoff's publication dates and the first edition came out in 82. 1982. And the style of have between like 1979 and 1982.
0: And the illustrations
1: I always think of the 70s being the 70s but the 70s dragged into the 80s and it is very much a 70s kind of publication.
0: If for some reason when we were looking for artwork for this display we kept coming across worms with hats on.
1: Everybody wants worms to have eyes even though they don't. And for worms to be smiling, all worms are happy. And worms always have to have hats. They have baseball hats and cowboy hats. Well,
0: the worm that I drew for one of our first posts on Root Simple was a worm with a cowboy hat. I don't know why I did that. It's but just like people you just have can't to. help.
1: They just can't help themselves. And some people put sunglasses on the worms, which I don't blame them because worms don't like sun, even though they don't have eyes. That
0: is true. <laughs> Anyways, I guess that's it for the podcast this week. I want to thank all of the listeners and root simple readers who sent in questions for Chef Ernie last week when we had our pressure canning podcast. There were Chef many really Ritty good was questions. Amazing. He that answered I all those questions
1: yes. like a champion.
0: Keep those questions coming. Uh, I'm going to schedule a few guests for the podcast in the future and as I do that, I will put up a blog post to ask for questions. And we look forward to hearing questions for both our guests and for us, too. And thank you for listening. To leave a question for the Root Simple podcast, call us at area code 213-537-2591. Or send us an email at rootsimple at gmail.com. We are Root Simple on Twitter. If you like the podcast, please leave a comment for us in the iTunes store. We're also on Stitcher. And you can support the Root Simple podcast by buying a copy of one of our books through the Amazon links on RootSimple.com. Our theme music is by Dr. Frankenstein. Thank you for listening.